Welcome to another episode of Faith and Culture Conversations. Pastors, ministers, and elders, we believe the enemy is after your mind and heart, so we're stepping into the fray. Today, we discuss the quandary of modern dating from a distinctly Christian perspective, as well as the question of Christian singleness and celibacy. What is God calling you to pursue? And as Christian parents, how can we set our kids up for godly success in the quest for a lifelong mate? Welcome to the conversation. We are back together with all the usual suspects. We've got Kyle Wisdom here with us. Hey, how you doing? And Van Minter. Morning, guys. And Keith Lowry. Hey there. And myself, Ben Lowry, and we've got Jeremy Wilkerson. Shout real loud for us, Jeremy. What up? All right, maybe you heard that, maybe you didn't. <laughs> well, today we're going to talk about the whole question of dating, uh, mm. romance finding, singleness here in the 21st century, and so... Most of the time on this podcast, we discuss principles from the book of Genesis, and we believe that these first principles, as we call them, are the framework of reality. Well, in what sense is the topic we're discussing today related to first principles, would you say? Not everybody at once. Well, God God created the relationship um, between the man and the woman, and so it's something he intends uh, to take place. In marriage, yeah, and so, yeah, dating sort of becomes the process by which you sort of set yourself up for some of those first principles. So, um, in in the New Testament, we sort of get two main categories for how people uh, engage their sexuality for the glory of God. Um, one of those is sort of celibacy under the Lord, and one of those is uh, is marriage and family, and so dating sort of becomes that arena where you sort of work out, okay, where am I going to fit? Um, and kind of those two main callings. Um, and so I would say it connects to sexuality, sort of what we've talked about before. It connects to family. It connects to marriage. It connects to um, calling in general, kind of what is the purpose of a human being, um, not only at a sexual level, but also a social and relational level too. Yeah, what Kyle said. Okay. <laughs> um, so I was watching a movie we like at our house. I grew up watching this movie. You guys familiar with the movie, the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? Yeah. You yes. guys know about that film? Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's a really interesting line that just feels otherworldly to me in, in the 21st century where a, a preacher says to a young woman, um, a young woman doesn't have a right to be single. The country needs to be settled. Um <laughs> And it sort of raises sort of this this uh, bygone approach to thinking about marriage as a responsibility. Um, and it's interesting coming from a preacher in this context, from the Seven Brides for Seven Brothers musical, um, because there really is a Genesis mandate, right, to be fruitful and multiply. God oriented the man and the woman toward one another in fruitfulness. Is the, is the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, is that Genesis mandate still in effect today? Is it still binding, would you say? Because I would argue that that's, that's sort of part and parcel with the first principle that we're, we're dancing around in this question of dating versus singleness. Right. I, I think you, you can certainly still refer to it as normative. I don't know if the New Testament, like I said, there's kind of those two 
sort of God honoring arrangements for human beings sort of makes it to where, yes, there is still the mandate to pursue marriage in a God honoring way, but there's also um, the choice and the goal of celibacy under the Lord, which I would say is from what from my own experience and as far as I can see in the statistics, is a pretty small minority of individuals who are Christian adults. And so I would say that certainly marriage and children is the normative experience of Christians. I think that's true. Um, I think the obligation to fill the earth is not revoked. Um, I don't think we've done it, even though there's, you know, this is a huge point of debate within the culture about whether we have too many people or, or, or what. Um, but I think in any marital context, you know, there's an old movie from 1967 called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. There's a great, shocking, actually, exchange between Sidney Portier, who's the lead in that movie, and his father, the guy who f- plays his father. And he, um, they're having a, well, actually, it's between Spencer Tracy and Sidney Portier, who plays the girl's father. And it's really a movie about interracial marriage and relationships, but... Uh, at, at this point, Spencer Tracy asks him, if, or, do they expect to have children? Has he given any thought to what their children are going to encounter as mixed-race children? And Sidney Portier says this amazing thing. He says, yes, I've given some thought to it. And he said, and we'll have the children because he says, and this is so heterodox in 2022, he says, because if we didn't have the children, I don't, want, I don't know what you would call it, but you couldn't call it a marriage. Hmm. And so as late as 1967, in a very secular film, the understanding existed that uh, marriage and fruitfulness and procreation went together mm-hmm. and were inseparable in the minds mm-hmm. of the writers of that movie and, and in the artistic expression that it embodied. So I do think <clears throat> while there's debate about whether we have too many people, there's nothing in Scripture that suggests that the Adamic Covenant went away you know, when Christ was raised from the dead. And so we still have a role to play in terms of dominion and fruitfulness, and um, all of that, I think, still adheres. I mean, to Kyle's point, that doesn't mean everybody's going to be married, but I think anyone who is married should take the view that part of the obligation that they're taking up in their marriage is is to populate the earth. Thinking about our last podcast with Josiah, you know, seems to be an attack on being fruitful, mm-hmm. you know, with mm-hmm. um, the way people view children in general. We see nations, you know, um, putting laws into effect and telling families how many children they can have. And it's um, it's interesting that there, there just seems to be this resistance to being fruitful and multiplying mm-hmm. in different ways across the globe. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe we have um what's the what's the phrase um uh, skip to the chase a little bit, jump to the chase. Um we cut to the chase. Cut to the chase. There it is. Cut. You could skip cut, skip and jump. Skip. Well, yeah. sometimes you skip to the chase. If you're if In you this case, like I think we definitely have skipped <laughs> to the chase. <laughs> but um there's something that precedes child rearing, <laughs> childbearing, and it is the world of Dating, and I'd like us to take a second and reflect on maybe compare and contrast the world of biblical betrothment yeah. and 21st century dating. So I don't um, really... is there is what what would you say is has that been an altogether positive trade off? 
So I had a really funny conversation with a buddy of mine one time in college. You know, we were both single at the time, and he was uh, he. I was in Bible college, and so you know, you just sort of get questions about these things with from people. And he asked me point blank. He said, "Kyle, do you think do you think dating is a is a good Christian thing? You know, to do." I sort of thought about it for a second. I said, "Well, you know, in the Bible, most people were uh, had arranged marriages. Like that's how marriage happened in in the scriptures." And I said, so we've really kind of got two options. We can either go back to that, which wouldn't would be altogether a bad thing. So, or we can date. And so it's kind of the best worst option we have at our current. Well, moment. I mean, a lottery is an option, but that's a little like dating. That's it is a little <laughs> bit like dating. Of course, in the lottery, there's there's not another person who can also mess it up on the other side. So right. maybe a better chance in some ways. Other thoughts? You're well, a, you're asking how today it compares, or yeah, what today's so, dating scene. So, like, I'm I'm looking back at the way that Abraham or Isaac or Jacob found spouses. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> gone are the days when you send your steward on a wife hunt. I attribute that to the fact that I can't afford a steward currently. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's always that problem. If we had stewards, maybe we would do more wife hunting in that sense. Um, but the, the, just the, I I think I find dating a little bit like choosing a career for for kids. It's sort of a isolated, you're on your own, bud kind of a kind of a journey. Um, you you don't have the cooperation of a family or community in that process. Um, I mean, we have got some general, you know, parents might give some guidance here, there, and yonder about this, that, and the other, but there's not. There's not a proactive communal pursuit of uh, marriage or finding quality marriage partners in the world the way that there was then. Is, is, is that kind of freedom? I think we would call that freedom today because these aren't arranged marriages. So is that kind of freedom um, good or indifferent? This has been a longstanding <clears throat> debate. I mean, going back, you know, as, to your point, you know, the betrothal, you know, Isaac was, he assumed a passive um, posture relative to being provided a wife. He didn't go out and seek a wife. He was provided one. Um, but that wasn't always the case. I mean, Jacob, his own son, went off to seek a wife among, um, among you know, his distant relatives. And so I think this is a longstanding debate, even in um, like Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. There's this discussion among the girls about whether they should have to marry for um, prudent, practical reasons or whether they were going to marry for love. And so I think that that's kind of a longstanding debate. And and, in one sense, the question you're raising is, um, is this business of pursuing your own spouse attendant with all the strong passions and feelings uh, that govern male and female relationships often, is that a good thing or would it be better to um, to provide this more for um, people who are marriageable age? I mean, I, I think that's a longstanding debate and something that has been talked about for thousands of years. I think what complicates that question is that the arrival of the dating method of finding a spouse 
coincided with, and probably for good reason, you can probably draw some pretty strong connections between these two things, but also coincided with a different uh, reason, to your point, Keith, yeah. for why we seek a spouse. So it kind of moved at the same time. We sort of gave up arranging marriages as about the same time we stopped believing that marriage had a purpose other than sort of this emotional companionship model, like we're looking for love, quote unquote. Right. And so there might be a good argument for the initiating intentional process that I think dating can be, pairing that with some of the more biblical understanding of what marriage is for. Um, I don't know if I would say that the cultural structure of arranged marriages is a necessity for a biblical perception of finding a spouse. Yeah, I think what we see in the biblical narrative is just an ancient Near Eastern culture going about finding marriages. And there are obviously family units were way more tight-knit than what we see today. Ultimately, I think the way we go about finding a partner reflects as much the culture we live in as it does, you know, some sort of divine design um, written into the fabric of creation. Or something. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not interested in making an argument that arranged marriages are inherently better than the other way around. I, but I would, I would be comfortable making the argument that um, arranged marriages are sometimes um, set up for a different kind of success than the dating marriage. Uh, ultimately, because I think our culture sort of views marriage through the lens of a psychotherapeutic, mm. finding my happily ever after, you're the one for me. And so then from that point forward, you've got these unhealthy, unrealistic expectations that you impose on your spouse to contribute at all times to your own happiness. Mm. And to the extent that they don't, you start to wonder whether you made a mistake in your choice. Right, you're not the one for me. Um, we hear that a lot, even among Christians. I'm looking for the one, or he's the one, or she's the one. Um, what I counsel young couples is, you know, she, she is the one, young man, because she's the one that you're saying I do to. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. You you choose the one. <laughs> the right. one is yeah. your. As soon as you've put the ring on her finger, or the soon as soon as you've said I do, uh, the question of is she the one, has now been settled. Right. So do you think there's a little bit of, um, in the whole dating model and the way people think about dating, do you think, I mean, I'm, I'm an old crusty guy now, and so I'm a little far removed from dating. I mean, I watch things that go on, but do you think there's a little bit of um, sort of illusion to what, or pretend, kind of let's pretend that goes on relative to what you're actually doing when you're dating? So... You know, if you watch Hallmark movies, uh, 23 minutes before the end of the movie, there's a crisis. And the crisis is almost invariably related to some giant misunderstanding related to a lack of communication. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, and often the lack of communication is absurd and you wonder, would people really not communicate about this? Um, But at any rate, I think, I feel like sometimes that the way people date no one's actually sort of owning up to what they're doing often. Mm. Like everybody, well, you know, the origins of dating were to find a spouse, not just to socialize, but to socialize toward an end. But I think, I sometimes wonder if there's a lot of dating that goes on right now where that's, no one's sort of even, either they're not thinking about it or they're not owning up to that that's a, 
Yeah. That's a dynamic in the whole process, you know. It looks like instinct divorced from purpose. Yeah. It's yeah. like we sort of got this innate instinct to find a romantic partner, um, but we don't really understand the purpose or the, uh, you know, the calling that's associated with that as Christians. Yeah, so I would, uh, to your question earlier about is this freedom, given the dating um, scenario, the way it's played out today, I would say it's dangerous in a lot of ways just because what those that are in the dating scene, your high school students, I mean, good grief, today it's down to junior high, you know, what you see people claiming to be in relationships, you know, in the demographics uh, of what that looks like. But I see students, college people acting out what they see put in front of their eyes. And so they're having stuff portrayed on TV shows and reality shows about this is what relationships are all about. And so, yeah, for a lot, it's just a um, uh, dating can be a hobby of sorts for some. Mm -hmm, And, you know, it's so I think we need to be as believers need to be thinking about dating with a purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, this is how God structured these relationships to be moving forward, right? Mm -hmm. So with my daughters, um, they don't like this a whole, I mean, they they understand it and they appreciate it, but they're always like, what are you going to ask them, Dad? So anytime my girls were dating somebody, they're going to sit with me. I take them out to dinner. We talk. I said, listen, you just with need the to- With the boy that they're interested in? Yeah, just me and him. Not yeah. not not. They're not invited. Right. You're, the and daughters so, aren't invited. Yeah. And so I just say, look, I just want you to know who I am, where I'm coming from, and this is how much I love my daughter. And there's a boundary and a structure to this relationship. If, if you want to be with her and she, she, she's got her own responsibilities before the Lord, but I'm just telling you where I'm coming from as a dad, if you want to be with her, this is what God expects. And I, I go, I have a conversation. Are you a believer? But I mean, there's a whole, so many parts of this that we, we could get into, but number one, I always tell my girls needs to be a believer, you know, not just a guy that says he goes to church somewhere, somebody following Jesus, right? And demonstrates that by the fruit in his life. But we have this conversation, and and I said, look, if you want this to disintegrate, if you want this to fall apart, then step outside the boundaries that I'm telling you that that God has put in place for us Mm -hmm. and that he he wants us to be held accountable to. And so parents need to be really intentional about this. And again, even as hard as we try to have, like I'm I'm, I'm sharing with you that I do, at the end of the day, our, our, our daughters, our sons, Still make choices, right? But we're—I think—as much as it's on us, um, we need to take that responsibility seriously and coach them according to God's word, and and uh, pray that that God would be honored in that. Yeah, there's a—it's a—it's an issue of faithfulness, not guaranteed outcome. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. I mean, you you got to do what you're called to do. Yeah, I. Uh, so this sort of raises a question in my mind of how would you you talk about counseling your the young men who want to date your daughters, but also counseling our daughters and our sons. What should you be looking for in a future mate? So how how would we talk about that? If you let's just say you're counseling a daughter or a son, or Kyle, you're a student pastor. How would you counsel students um, to what should you be looking for in a future yeah. mate? So one of the things that I see a lot in dating circles, it was something I was guilty of early on in a lot of my dating as well, is 
people who date because i mean there's obviously casual dating for the purpose of you know just sort of the sex or for the you know the fun of it because it's an exciting you know it's an exciting relational experience for a lot of people but what i see a lot often is dating for the sake of affirmation it's sort of looking to sort of go i want to find someone who will tell me i'm uh good looking or tell me i'm worthy or tell me i'm something cool and so it really becomes sort of a i'm hunting just for that acceptance and you see this a lot in younger daters because they haven't achieved sort of a an emotional spiritual maturity that says hey i know who i am in christ i know what my life is about and what they do is they use those dating relationships to help kind of define themselves and when I'm when I'm talking to youth, it's like you have to know who you are first before you enter into a dating relationship. Because if you don't, you'll let that other person define you and sort of send you on whatever track they they're on themselves. And so it kind of becomes a, uh, you know, the person who sort of dates around and they become a new person depending on, you know, what their partner likes and who their partner is. And so I always tell youth, you know, you have to have your own identity in Christ solid first. Because when you're entering into that relationship, you're actually trying to bring something to the table, not just sort of be a person who sort of soaks up affirmation from the other person. Yeah, I, I tell students and uh, anybody that's in that situation, if you find yourself um, feeling pressure to be somebody that you're not, this isn't the relationship you need to be in. It, you're, you're conforming more to what you think they want from you instead of being who Christ has made you to be, and so you need to stand firm in your convictions. I'll tell you a funny story. When I was fourth grade, um, there was this girl in my class that, for whatever reason, I took a liking to, redhead. Sherry Engel was her name. And, um, if so you're we, listening, Sherry, this is for you. <laughs> so in that, I don't know if people do this anymore, but writing notes to each other, if you like me, check yes or no kind of thing. So she checked yes, and at that from that point on, we were boyfriend-girlfriend, even though we never talked and never <laughs> never did anything together. So I get a call one day at home. It's a Sounds like a lot of marriages, yeah. actually, today. <laughs> and it was a you know still the rotary uh, dial. And uh, it's Sherry. I don't know how she got my number. I mean, we had telephone books back in the day. You know, there's no... no uh, smartphone or anything like that going on. And so I was just shocked that she called me and she says, guess what I'm saying to you? And she was doing sign language. Just, I don't know. I can't see it. <laughs> she was doing sign language over the phone. <laughs> and so she's saying, I love you. And I was, man, that made my day. And so I was just so excited. Me and Sherry had everything going on, right? And so next week at school, <laughs> it's recess. And we didn't, I'm telling you, we didn't hang out at all. She runs up to me with a pack of girls, kicks me in the shins, and says, We're breaking up. And that was the end of the relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have a relationship, no purpose, but it was just because you saw other people doing that. There's a thrill to being loved and yeah. desired and, yeah. you know, liked in that way. There's a thrill to it. And, you know, to, to me, beyond the questions of identity, because I'm not even sure, you know, at what, like fourth graders, how are you going to tell a fourth grader to, like, you need to know what your identity in Christ is first. You know, it's like, yes, well, what I yes, would, true. What I would say is wear shin guards. I mean, yeah, so, shin yeah. guards. That's just some good <laughs> advice. Date right. shin guards. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I, I think if, because I, I have a daughter and a son, um, and my daughter one of the things I want to be looking at, I want her to be looking for in a future mate is um, responsibility and competence. Okay. So uh, like for me, Kyle, you've hit the nail on the head. 
both individuals need to know exactly what's going on in their relationship to Jesus. That's that is a non-negotiable. That's table stakes. Th- yeah, yeah, that's like, yeah, we, we, it's a non-starter if someone is not in Christ. Um, for for a Christian, there's this thing about being unequally yoked, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that beyond that, like in a sort of just a very practical realm, for my daughter, it's you. I want you to find somebody who's good at something. <laughs> And knows what it means to take responsibility, um, and and is making something of himself, right? Because I think that it's kids, young people, are um, in, infatuation is dangerous. Okay, I'll put it that way. Uh, it can cloud judgment. And when you're infatuated with somebody, you may really like this person and have all those strong feelings, but at the end of the day, this is not a person that you should be tethering yourself to for life. Um, and I think especially for young women, that can be a, a dangerous thing. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a movie that I watched not long ago, came out, I think it was a book first, Far From the Matting Crowd. It's a good movie. Okay, so it's about this girl who's got choices, right? She's got this guy that's sort of her equal. Um, he's a shepherd, and um, he's really, really good at being a shepherd, but he loses all his sheep in one fell swoop and has to sort of become a, a, a job-searching sojourner um, for a season of his life. But he had proposed marriage, and she turned him down because she was looking for something else in her life. She wasn't sure what she was looking for. Then she ends up she ends up inheriting this massive estate and this massive farm and sort of running this state as the matriarch of the estate or whatever. And there's an older gentleman who takes a liking to her. He's rich, but he's not dashing or, or um, young and attractive enough. The romance just isn't there. He's got, he's got the ability to provide for her in a meaningful way, but he's just not romantic enough for her. Then this young fop comes along. He's a soldier, and he's a ne'er-do-well, all right? And he ends up, they end up falling falling in love. She gives herself to him, and they get married, and her life becomes a ruin because of this guy. I mean, it invites sorrow after sorrow after sorrow. The end of the movie, she ends up figuring out that that shepherd was probably where it's at, and, um, and they end up getting married. He was competent, responsible, gentle, masculine, um, a provider, uh, calm, quiet. I mean, like this is the kind of guy you want your daughter to fall yeah. fall for. You know. Okay, you took like twelve things, so can, I'm going to take a yeah, couple of those ahead. back. So, um, I would say one of them is uh, a person who communicates their intentions clearly. So when they're communicating to you, are they putting their chips on the table? As was mentioned before, I think a lot of people date in this world of ambiguity. They sort of go, "Well, I'm going to keep." you know, what I want and what I'm going for away from you and sort of keep myself safe in that way and sort of let you flounder around. You know, one of the things uh, when I was when I was dating my wife early on, I learned I needed to do is communicate what she should wear to a date. And that was a very bizarre thing to me because I wear literally the same thing <laughs> to like everything I'm doing. Um, but I realized that one of the things she needed from me was to communicate what was expected. So like, hey, are we going bowling? Because I need to wear bowling appropriate attire, right? Or whatever it is. And so one of the things that I would say, if you're looking for somebody to date, look for someone who's willing to communicate not only what they're doing, but what they're after clearly and 
early and often because that means they're taking you seriously. They're taking the relationship seriously. Yeah. Um, so that I would, would be say one a corollary sure. to that would you know communicating, but sort of to tie the two together. This idea of competence and responsibility, reliability, and um, yeah. communication would be a person with goals. Yeah, find a person who sets goals for themselves and chases those down. You uh, know, I'm actually just sort of wildly impressed that Kyle made it all the way to the altar with Emily when he took her bowling. <laughs> as, as a dating, I don't actually know, remember if bowling was specifically did, one of the. Did it well, come up? I'm sure. Bowling. I'm sure there was at least one bowling <laughs> okay. date. Okay. I was. I was uh, on a shoestring budget for a lot, a lot well, of that yeah. dating experience. Although d- bowling's yeah. kind of a primo well, price thing, so I guess yeah, that could be. I'll, I'll add another thing to that. Kind of in that same cluster of ideas, Ben. It's the idea of when you're evaluating someone's character. So it's really easy to sort of in that infatuation zone go like oh they are brave they are dashing they are you know mm-hmm. we sort of trick ourselves right and we don't really see people clearly in those situations one of the things that i've learned and i've i've sort of learned from other people in their dating relationships is uh watch what they do uh watch how they treat others and how other people's and how other people evaluate them mm-hmm. so like one of the things that i did whenever i was dating my wife is uh i would watch her relationships with her friends yeah, that she'd known important. for years and years and years mm-hmm. and how those friends relied upon her and trusted her and esteemed her, uh, watching the way that she would treat people who she really couldn't get anything from, like how she treated the waiters at restaurants, how she treated uh, you know the people who were serving her, you know, like getting her stuff at Target or whatever. Those were really helpful things for me to see character that wasn't clouded by my emotions. Yeah, we just finished the study at, at our church in um, the book of Ruth. We went through um, the story of this Moabite girl who uh, is transplanted to Bethlehem and ends up in just really in great need of a spouse of redemption. Okay, is the is the term that Ruth, the book of Ruth, uses. And um, one of the you know she ends up falling for a guy named Boaz. Boaz ends up falling for her, but. One of the keys to understanding why they fell for each other is a word that shows up throughout the book, and it's the, it's the word worthy, okay? And it means strength. In the original Hebrew, it's the word strong. There's a strong woman and a strong man, but what they're pointing to is the character of the person, right? So, Kyle, you use the term character. You're looking and you're watching how is she or he engaging with the people around him? How are they engaging with their themselves and their pursuit of something bigger than themselves? Um, I, I think uh, going through that study, I sort of developed, a, um, I don't know what you would call this, a, a, a mantra for, for dating, for advice for young couples, and it's character over chemistry, hmm. right? Look for character over chemistry. Chemistry should be there. You need to find that, right? Like, don't you don't want to get married to somebody you, you just don't jive with, right? But they've got great character, you yeah. Because at the um, end of the day, you just spend a lot of time sitting on a couch next yeah. to that. Person. You'll do some. You'll do some really good deeds together. But at the end of the day, uh, you're not going to have a lot of romance or joy in that. In that. So character, though, over chemistry. But chemistry should be present. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I've. I always told my girls, <clears throat> well, when I the, when I take the guys out for conversations and uh, I'm telling them why I wanted to be with them, I, I I let them know. I said, listen, I just want to talk with you, but I don't want you to tell me what you think I want to hear. I said, eventually, who you are will show. And so I've ingrained that in my girls. And so uh, between some of the 
dates that they've had um, at various times. Uh, one guy told one of my daughters, he said, look, I want to be everything you, you want me to be. She said, you know, this, this isn't anything we need to pursue because she could tell that it wasn't his character, but he was trying to mold himself mm-hmm. into what she mm-hmm. thought she uh, what what he thought she wanted from mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Had another kid, but it wasn't his desire. Yeah. It wasn't it his. Was, yeah, yeah. But he liked her. Right, right. Um, then I, for one of my other daughters, I'd taken this guy out. We had the same conversation. He comes to her after a couple of weeks of them having a few dates, and he says, "Listen, I just can't live up to be the person I think your dad is asking me to be to you." I appreciate the guy's honesty. My daughter was upset. I said, listen, take that as a blessing, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, that he's yeah. at least honest enough to say that to you so you don't get into right. some messy situation. So yeah, that's really you, good. You yeah. see this a lot, and it was something I experienced, other people around me experienced, and it's my generation called it missionary dating. On its extreme end, it's Christians dating unbelievers because they want to get them saved. You know, it's like, I actually have an emotional attraction to this person. If I can be around them, they'll get saved, and then we can get married. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the ultimate mm-hmm. hallmark extravaganza. So on one end, it's that, and that's obviously outside the bounds of Scripture, obviously outside the bounds of wisdom. But on the other end, you do get these kind of two Christian couples, or two Christian uh, individuals, and but one of them really isn't... Uh, doing really isn't doing anything really isn't going in the same direction as this person but the person thinks the dating relationship is for fixing that person up and it's like that's not what that relationship is for um that relationship is for two people who are already headed in the same direction uh joining hands and saying let's go that same direction together which is one of the reasons why i think self-control is something you should be looking for um is this a person who knows how to say no to themselves are they someone who's able to like save money? Are they someone who's able to, when they get bad news, take it with grace? Are they able to, when you put a boundary up, do they sort of push back against that boundary or do they accept that with grace and with respect? Because mm-hmm. if you don't have someone with self-control, you're basically just at the whim of their emotions and that's a bad place to put yourself. Somebody, I think it was Ben Franklin. It probably was. It could have been anybody, but he, he likely said this also at one point in his life, so we'll give him the credit. He said... Um, no man is truly free until he's mastered himself. Yeah. To your point about self-control, um, there's a, freedom comes with knowing how to say no. I want us to pan out just a little bit here. Um, we've been sort of looking at the details of a, a specific relationship and what a girl should be looking for in a guy or a guy looking for in a girl. But I, I'd like to I'd like us to talk about some of the factors in our culture here in the 21st century that war against. Um, a boy or a girl's ability to become the kind of person that uh, we would want our kids to be looking for in a partner or that we would want them to become themselves so they can be a partner to somebody. I, I tend to think about this as, a, as the three-headed revolutionary monster, okay? So bear oh, with me for oh. a second, okay? So um, you've got the sexual revolution, okay? You've got the industrial revolution and the educational revolution, I think these three things together form a three-headed monster warring against our children, becoming the kinds of people that we need them to be to be able to enter into marriage in a healthy and holy way. So the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, the Industrial Revolution really took away a kid's inbuilt opportunity to achieve competence at something at an early age. 
All right. So with the Industrial Revolution, moms and dads were pulled away from the home, away from the farm, away from the shop, right, and plugged into the industrial machine in the city centers. Kids were left to fend for themselves. So suddenly, overnight, gone were the days when boys and girls were trained up within their homes to become competent at a trade or at a homemaking skill of some sort, Um you know, in their teens, they would have been competent at those things, ready to become married early. The educational system was sort of a collateral damage to the Industrial Revolution, but the Educational Revolution took the primary responsibility of education away from the family and bestowed that on the state. Well, the state's goals for our children turned out to be different than a family's goals for for someone's children. Education was sort of the baseline agreement across both of those realms but at the end of the day, the state system, education today, home or state, by the way, I should say, Christian or secular, is oriented towards science, math, history, the liberal arts, right? But no one graduates from high school with any form of competence. <laughs> no one graduates from high school with the ability to produce something or make something or provide something. You're like, you graduate from high school and then hopefully you go to college where we think you'll gain the experience necessary to do this, right, to be competent. But couple both those things together with the sexual revolution, and we've got a nightmare on our hands. So kids are maturing sexually at a far younger age, both biologically and socially maturing younger at a far younger age, and and, and yet they're not going to be competent for a number of years yet. Yeah. So 16 years old, they may be sexually and socially ready for marriage. Now, I, 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 I hear me. I realize that that's countercultural. I'm not actually advocating that 16-year-olds should be getting married. But they're still 10 to 15 years away from achieving any level of competence. So they have all of the drive, all of the desire, all of the opportunity for sexual encounters within the dating structure that we have it as we have it, but w- they lack the ability to actually pair themselves together in a competent, uh, responsible, reliable way. Yeah, and it's being promoted. I just read this morning Ohio State University is promoting, uh, uh, along with other campuses, college campuses, sex week um, this week. And I don't think any college needs to promote well, that's such a blessing. Thing. I thought well, that was 52 weeks a year. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that. Yeah. They, is there a week for that? Yeah, and, and in addition to it, they, they're saying, and thank your local abortion providers. Uh, why, why, so, so just really for yeah. my own clarity, what does sex week mean? <laughs> like encouraging people to do whatever you feel like doing, you know, in relationship to <laughs> like I mean, it's it's a <laughs> university sorry. sanctioned sexual promiscuity, basically. That's why it's. I mean, like it's do, would, people yeah. are doing that anyway, mm-hmm. but it's like it's kind of like Christmas. We're buying yeah. gifts and spending money all year round, but when we concentrate on a certain week, it really ramps up the 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 gift giving. You know. Um, that point, sounds like what's going on. The point being, what you're talking about here is being, um, this is being promoted and pushed on people that aren't yeah. ready, have no idea what this is about, what it's <laughs> right. for. And so they wake up picking up the broken pieces and they'll carry those scars into the rest of their life. You hmm. know. Well, and so many, to, to your point about uh, children sexually being initiated so much younger. I mean, when we think about um, the effect of pornography on people's sexual behavior, sexual perception, not only themselves but of others, of sexual relationships. I mean, you're basically taking a bunch of people who are already sexually immature, who you know are in need of development, 
and we're thrusting them into extremely toxic and unhealthy uh, scenarios, watch pornography of any number of, you know, heinous activities and then saying, okay, and now go take that into these relationships with people. Like that mm -hmm. becomes their sexual education. And so we're basically putting people who are addicted to a sexual drug and then throwing them into relationships and then telling them, but you probably won't get statistically married till you're 30. Right. And just letting them wreak havoc on one another. Right. Into, and so, you know, we're talking about kind of what should we should be looking for in spouses as well as, you know, what are the cultural currents and how those are affecting that. Man, if you have somebody who's in that world, who's addicted to that kind of activity, that is a full stop non-starter when it comes to dating in my mind. Yeah. If that's where your your mind and heart and your body are, you have you, you cannot think clearly enough to have a healthy relationship. Yeah. Right. But that's like most teenagers now. Yeah. I, one of the things we see also, Kyle, to your point about pornography is that it sort of sets a person's sexual expectations. Right. At a young age, girls are taught to believe that they are for the sexual enjoyment of their spouse, their sexual objects, just the way that porn treats women as sexual objects. Right. Um, you know, we saw this with King Xerxes in Esther chapter one recently in a, in a church. Um, you know, he viewed Vashti and his harem as primarily the sexual, the objects of sexual pleasure or visual um, celebration, right? Just objects. Um, and then encouraged all the men of the kingdom to view their wives the same way, you know? And it also turns men into voyeurs. So it actually, you know, a lot of people talk about, and there is and there's uh, some indication that uh, pornography makes men sort of almost more of a sexual predator in the terms of how they act. But a lot of men also are turned into becoming very passive. They actually treat sexual relationships as something that should come to them, something that they should just receive as a gift from the universe. It's something that they are owed. It's something they shouldn't have to work for. They shouldn't have to invest themselves in. And so it becomes sex on demand without any sacrifice, without any uh, investment. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing is among y the young, what we're finding, the statistics are showing that fewer and fewer young people are actually having sex. Yeah. Um, which is which is odd. And this actually speaks to probably the impact of digital technology on dating and romance among the young. Yeah. Um, but porn in some way, in some cases, is becoming a replacement for actually finding a, a sexual partner. Um, and the way that Christians, I think, should talk about it, not a, a sexual partner, but a marriage partner with right. whom the sexual intimacy becomes uh, an important part, but not the only part of that relationship. Right. Yeah. Well, and then you, you know, pornography is kind of the one end of that spectrum, but then you sort of push back into what's more and more mainstream for people. And it's the shows you have on Netflix, you know, that are people running into that are just filled with all of these sexual relationships that, you know, people sort of find ways to make okay to watch. You've got um, so many things, uh, the education we're putting into schools now about what is expected of sex education from the state. Um, we're sort of pushing sex into all of these nooks and crannies of our social life, completely untethered from relationship, completely untethered from responsibility. Right. Um, right. So here's an interesting statistic that I want to throw at you guys and get some get you guys to interact with a little bit. In 1950, the median age of someone's first marriage among men was 22, 
and among women was 20. Okay. In 2021, a shocking 71 years later, the median age of first marriage among men is 30, and among women is 29. Now, when you couple that statistic together with the fact that, generally speaking, we are um, far more, we live in a far more lucrative, financially stable society today than they did in the 1950s. How do we account for, I mean, I think we've talked, we've hit on this, but I'd love to hear you guys interact with it. How do we, how do we account for that gap? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is that, should we be concerned about that? Is it completely irrelevant? Should we be indifferent to a statistic like that? Well, how do we, how should we engage with that as Christians? Uh, you know, full disclosure, I got married when I was 19 years old. And, um, Maybe it was a generational thing, but by that point, I had, had, I had been continuously working for 10 years. I got my first job as a nine-year-old, and I, I worked, I've, I mean, I'm 62 almost now, and I've been working ever since. I was nine, so I guess that's 53 years. <clears throat> um, so I think I was in some ways at a, at a little different place where a lot of 19-year-olds are today. Um, but having said that, um, that is some level uh an indictment of the way we're bringing up children today kind of you made this point earlier ben about you know somehow we give our children over to an educational system that keeps them locked up in rooms for 12 years and they come out of that experience economically inept and incapable of producing value now there's something fundamentally wrong with that if a young man who's 18 has been locked in a room at in a public educational system for 12 years, and at the end of that, he can't really do anything to provide for himself or other people, there's something, we've been doing something wrong with our time. And so I think part of what you're seeing in this age gap is that we've pushed competence down the road, and so I think men are not even capable, in some sense, of taking up the responsibilities of families until they're older, because we've wasted so many years that could have been equipping them with competent skills uh, and they don't get started even on becoming competent until what we would consider adulthood in any other generation, any other culture, frankly. So I think it's not a good thing. Also, it would be interesting to couple that statistic, by the way, <clears throat> with you know our earlier conversation about is, is fruitfulness sort of tied up with marriage. It'd be interesting to couple that statistic, and I don't think it's going to be a happy combination with um, fertility in women. Mm -hmm. The trend line in terms of age and how that correlates to fertility in women. Uh, Because I think, you know, prior to the time you're 30, um, it, for most healthy couples, you know, getting pregnant is not prime, a big... Those are prime reproductive years. Right. After 30, it becomes sort of exponentially harder as the years go by. And so, and, and once again, these are generalizations. This is not, this is not, there are exceptions in every context, right? But, uh, so I think there's an implication to the earlier question about, do we think marriage is primarily about fruitfulness when we kick the can down the road and we keep kicking the can down the road mm-hmm. and we, we don't get married until we're sort of past our prime reproducing years and then we're taking advantage of all kinds of 
of birth control to kick the can further down. Mm-hmm. And then, I, I, I mean, I know people who've been really disappointed because they waited a long time to try to start having children, and then they found it a lot more difficult than they anticipated. So, um, Yeah, so Les and I got married at 22, and um, so we're from the 50s. <laughs> but uh well, I, I thought you looked like you were yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um yeah i agree with what keith's saying you know we had our first two girls in our 20s and um hattie came along in our uh, early 30s but you know it's you know for for the mom and dad your your younger years and you just have the energy to run and track with them mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that and so i'm really thankful for the timing of all that. Um, and we do count our children a blessing. We know that nothing's owed to us. And, and, um, so, uh, yeah, what Keith's saying, you know, you're, if you're in high school and then you, if they go off to college, you know, you had another four years to that and you still have them coming out of, you know, 16 years of education. And for many, it's a, it's almost as if they're still starting at ground zero, they, they, no direction, no idea where, mm-hmm. what they're going to do after they just graduated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we've tried to do our best to say, listen, during these years, you're going to work. And, and I think one of the problems is things are always provided for kids, mm-hmm. uh, for a lot of kids today, again, generalization there to where they don't have to work for anything or see the value in working and, and you pay for your stuff and, and understand yeah. what it means to reach a goal and, and provide for yourself. And so, um, you know, we've tried to instill that and. In, Best ways we know how, not mm-hmm. perfect at it, but we're trying to uh, balance that between mom and dad being a blessing and help because you can uh, versus uh, enabling to where you are you really don't know how to take care of yourself. We don't mm-hmm. want to uh, raise children to be like that. And so that's been a goal of ours. Yeah. Um, boom forward. Up. <laughs> Social critics have a, have a concept here, um, a term that they use to talk about some of the problems we're articulating in this conversation, and it's it's the adolescent parenthesis, okay? Mm. And what we find in society today is that that adolescent parenthesis is expanding on both ends. In other words, on the high end, adolescence is expanding into the 30s, right? On the low end, adolescence is expanding down into the, like, eight, nine years old, okay? A person becomes sexually mature, in terms of their exposure to sexual content and their understanding of sexual themes at a younger and a younger age, that's one of the that's one of the ways they measure the adolescent parenthesis on the low end. On the high end, the adolescent parenthesis is measured in terms of responsibility and capability. Okay, so adolescence is, t- is tends to be viewed as those period of years where you're not for anything except enjoyment. Right. <laughs> Nothing's expected of you. You're supposed to like you're young. Just live it up. You know, just embrace your youth. Go to college. Get the college experience. You know, don't take on responsibility. Avoid that at all costs. Just live your life while you can, while you're young. That sort of adolescent myth mm. has permeated our culture so much so that I think even Christian parents have bought into this. And I find that not, not that Christian parents are exposing their their young children to sexual themes that you know, but it's harder and harder. I will say for Christian parents to keep their children at a young age from being exposed to those sexual themes. But what we do find is that Christian parents are sort of living vicariously through the romantic relationships of their children in their teens, but not really giving thought to their development 
incompetence or responsibility so that they're capable of taking on some kind of the responsibility of a romantic relationship at a young enough age. That I think that adolescent parenthesis does more to corrupt the dating relationships among youth. Um, they they end up viewing even each other mm. as another aspect of their the joy of adolescence, right? Oh, you know, we're not really a responsibility. We're just going to enjoy each other, sort of enjoy the infatuation, mm. maybe enjoy the sexual attraction and activity. Um, no strings attached, yeah. right? No strings attached. We've all heard that. Yeah. And I think we also can't underestimate the effect of several generations post kind of the sexual revolution of the adolescence of today having generations worth of divorce that they've had modeled for them, generations of uh, cohabitation. So for a lot of younger you know, adolescents today, their parents are not married or have never married or have been married multiple, multiple times. And so I, I know for me growing up, one of the reasons I think that I had such a view, such a high view and such a desire for marriage later in my life was I had modeled for me what a loving marriage could look like right? in my, in my home. I saw it every day. And not a lot of kids have that benefit all the time. And I think there's, when you don't have that modeling, when you don't have that vision cast for you, and, or also just the way that we isolate teenagers among teenagers only, yeah. mm-hmm. when you only ever have people around you who are in that same stage of like dating or in ambiguity, it's hard to, to look for that as a goal. It's right. hard to go, oh, that's what I want because you don't see it. It's not that tangible vision. Yeah, there's a there's a funny thing. We 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 could talk about that adolescent myth as um, no expectation to contribute. We have no expectation of the adolescent, those who fit that adolescent parenthesis, to contribute in some way to society. Um, I, I want to contrast that with uh, the way things were about a hundred years ago. Okay. It wasn't that long ago in agrarian culture, probably more than 100 years ago now. I would have to go back maybe 150 years ago, um, where people would get together. Children were primarily in intergenerational context, all right? They weren't really isolated by themselves among their own youth, among their own peers, right? Um, they were they were engaged with parents, or they were apprenticed to masters, or they were spending the majority of their time with other adults, and the goal was to become an adult as soon as possible. But what's funny is a lot of times they would get together at parties. Families would come together for community parties and gatherings, and um, the men would sort of go cluster together with the men. The women would go cluster together with the women, and then the youth would cluster together with the youth. So the boys and the girls would sort of divide up. It, It doesn't sound all that unfamiliar to the way social gatherings happen in the 21st century either, except that what often happened among the boys is that the boys would come together at these social gatherings within an agrarian context, They'd gather around a fire, say, at, at night, and they would compare traps, okay? <laughs> it wasn't uncommon that the, the conversation dr- that preoccupied the, the boys of 150 years, years ago was what traps were working on what varmints on the farm. Hmm. They would compare notes. Boys were expected to contribute something valuable to the economic stability of the family and the society. Their job was to shoot or catch the varmints, right? And so it's entirely different. If you look at the conversations that float around among the boys of today, it's often not responsibility-oriented. 
That's cheat codes for Xbox and PlayStation. <laughs> right, yeah, cheat codes or or, or, or whatever. Or, the, you know, they might not even be talking. They might just be texting. So Yeah, so I just, not even in anticipation of this conversation, um, <clears throat> Ben and I and his brother, we we have a kind of an open chat session that we just kind of lob things back and forth at each other when they come across. And apropos of not this conversation, but just thought it was interesting, I sent them a, a post that someone had done online last week, and it said Ludwig von Mises at 30. And so he, it's like if he were making a post, here's what he would say as a 30-year-old. I wrote my first book to compensate for the flaws in Austrian theories of economics and integrate monetary theory into the general theory of economics. That's what, <laughs> that's what he had done at 30. And this says, me at age 30, my meme got 11 likes. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and then, I, then I told him, interestingly enough, you know, Orson Welles was only 26 years old when he directed Citizen Kane. I, um, I said that that probably explains why I didn't care for that movie all that much. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wasn't yeah. a fan of Citizen Kane either, but yeah. it was I will know, say widely I, viewed as a technical achievement. achievement. It's, yeah. it's a pretty spectacular, in terms of cinematography, but sorry, that's my <laughs> that's yeah. my nerding out. But I will say I have noticed, uh, at least among among the youth that I'm talking to right now, a, a counterculture to this. So, yeah. you know, there is a lot of worry. There is a lot of things like, mm-hmm. oh, man. But the counterculture ha- is actually outside of institution. So what the what I'm discovering is a lot of my older guys are realizing they want to be good at something, mm. and they can't Smart. find it in their school, and they can't honestly. I'll, I'll put myself in this. They can't find it always in the church either. Yeah. And so they'll they'll go and they'll learn to fix cars at, with a gr- other group yep. of like minded men, yep. or they'll learn to they'll learn to computer program amounts around like minded men. And what they're doing is they're tapping into that desire of a young man, and I think young women have the same thing, but. Um, I've noticed that the educational systems seem to give at least a lot of my, my, my ladies the ability to pursue some of those goals for themselves. Um, but the guys will get together because they see I'm for something. I'm for something bigger than myself. I'm for something more than what I'm being told I am. And they pursue it, and it gives. And they have a hunger for it, and they get That's good great. at stuff. So I, I'd like to um, piggyback on what you just said, Kyle, and shift the conversation. And this is turning into a slightly longer conversation than we normally have um, on this podcast. But uh, there, there's there's more to discuss, and we want to we want to do our due diligence to cover these topics. And so, I'd like to shift and talk about calling. Um, I, I I think one of the things missing in this whole conversation about dating versus singleness, or dating and singleness, is the idea of calling. I think too often we we view, am I going to date? Who am I going to date? Um, or should I be single as a lifestyle choice rather than a calling? Mm. And the Bible doesn't talk about these things as lifestyle choices. The Bible talks about them as callings or gifts of God. God gifts to you something that corresponds to your calling and purpose. And on the one hand, it might be marriage. But on the other hand, it's singleness. And I heard a guy, um, for Pete's sake, I cannot remember his name. All of a sudden, his name has slipped my mind. He's an author, a thinker, pastor. Anyhow, he, he made the argument that in both cases, marriage and singleness, that's not something you dither around about. It's something you pursue mm. as a calling. It's not something you flirt with or play with or 
bounce around wondering what's my lifestyle going to be, my preference. It is a calling. So if God has called you to marriage and you have a desire to be married, you need to pursue that as a calling unto the Lord in your life. Become competent. Become responsible. Be a faithful, reliable individual. If you're a young man, learn something. Get good at it fast, right? And and be able to take on the responsibilities associated with marriage. But let's talk a little bit about singleness. I think a lot of people view singleness as like perpetual bachelorhood or bachelorettehood. Um, what is it that the Bible's really saying about singleness? Because I think that we've got, it's sort of in vogue to validate the single adult today, um, rather than encourage someone to pursue a calling of marriage or a calling of singleness. What does the Bible say about singleness, in fact? Well, Paul gives instruction about, when he's talk, giving instruction on marriage, that if, if it were up to him, he'd say remain single because you can serve the Lord without being weighted down with some of the responsibilities that marriage brings. Not that that's bad, but he's just, I think, championing the fact that, you know, the the single person can be devoted in a, in a way that maybe the married person uh, can't, I don't know if can't's the right word to use, but there's just responsibilities and obligations that you're going to have to take into consideration in the marriage relationship. Um, obviously, he's a champion for marriage because he talks about that being a picture of our Jesus relationship with the church, and mm-hmm. and so um, he's not down on marriage. Uh, I can remember having a conversation with a college friend of mine. You know, we were learning about celibacy being a real possibility for some people. You know, a calling in it to be embraced. We were terrified that we had both been called to celibacy. We we just did. We were like probably your first clue that you yeah, weren't. Yeah, we were fretting over it, and, we, and then we got to the end of our our hour-long worry session and thought, you know, as much as we both want to get married one day to to a, a girl, it's got to be a sign that God's not called us to be celibate. And so we concluded that was God's green light. You guys are getting married. And uh, so, um, but I, I, I do see it. I, I had a, a BSM director at Howard Payne uh, called to celibacy, loves the Lord, and never, never expressed regret for being single in that sense. He, you know, it really was about serving the Lord. Um, he didn't view his singleness as, hey, I can just live life however I want to now. It's all about me. I mean, he, he really understood um, and believed that the Lord had called him to, to celibacy and was just a fantastic servant mm-hmm. to the students, mm-hmm. to the Lord. Uh, we still get chance a chance here and there to see him and uh, had a great influence and impact in Leslie and I's life um, during our college years. Hmm. You know, I don't think there's any calling that God ever gives of any kind that is a calling to self-indulgence. Right. And I think, <clears throat> you know, in the same way that marriage is not a calling to self-indulgence, but uh, – a calling to give yourself to another. Self-sacrifice, yeah. Right. In the same way, I think uh, singleness is a call not to self-indulgence, but to sacrifice. And I think you get a hint about this uh, in some of Paul's statements about widows and who, which widows are Mm -hmm. to be put on a list of supported widows Mm -hmm. by the church that sort of um, should be supported and helped by the church. And it is... You know this list of this descriptive list he gives are widows who have been giving of themselves, and 
serving in the church and loving and taking care of their families and all these uh, things. And so even widowhood, who doesn't have the responsibilities of marriage, nevertheless, he's saying the measure of a good widow is someone who's giving of herself. And I think that's true in any any single person, not just probably not just widows. That is the point of singleness is to be uh, more productive and able to um, to minister within the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a way to do that because um, I think there is a time when someone has to recognize the difference between celibacy as a calling and singleness as a season. And I think there's a there's the ability to look at that honestly and say, listen, I don't think I'm called to celibacy, but I do not either have the opportunity or the resources. But right now I'm single. Yeah, but, but, but right now I'm single, right? right. And, and taking that and saying, I don't have to, I don't have to make that like, you know, some grand epic goal for my life to be able to say, that's where I am. I'm going to be faithful in this moment, mm-hmm. right? So in the same way that when somebody's dating, um, they're not trying to date and say like, well, I know that this necessarily at this exact moment is the person I'm going to marry, but they're saying I'm pursuing as best as I know how mm-hmm. to seek first the kingdom of God through this dating relationship. And mm-hmm. so for people who are single, I think it's important to know why. Maybe your singleness is like, hey, I'm a, I'm a single person right now because I really want to focus on this ministry God has given me, and I don't want to be distracted by a dating relationship or pursuing marriage at this time. Or being able to say I'm single because I'll be honest – I'm not surrounded by any godly opportunities for a spouse at the moment and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to lay that aside until those opportunities present themselves in a way that I can pursue in a God honoring way. Mm-hmm. But I think sometimes if you see singleness as sort of this, or honestly marriage for that, for that purpose, if it becomes, this is what's going to make me the happiest at this present moment, instead of this is what I can do to honor the Lord. Uh, I, th- I think there's something unhealthy about that. There's the seek first, the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Kind of thing. Well, it and it's ultimately sort of believing the lie that you can be happy apart from um, seeking first the kingdom or pursuing Christ's will for your life. Now, there are seasons of happiness. I mean, the Bible says sin is pleasing for a season, but in the end, it disappoints. Um, if, well, in the end, it kills you, um, and that's a disappointment. No one wants to be killed, right? <laughs> so, um, low but, on the list, for right? Most. It's low on the list of satisfying, like therapeutic things to happen to you. But, um, but yeah, I, I I like this idea of both singleness and um, and dating being about sacrifice. You know, for for the person who's pursuing marriage, uh, pursue it unto the Lord. Let everything you do, do it as unto the Lord. Are you pursuing marriage? Do it as unto the Lord. Mm-hmm. Choose the mate that you think reflects Jesus, right? If that person doesn't reflect Jesus, don't take on a marriage project. That's that's not what marriage is for, yeah. right? Yeah. If if um, if if you're single and you think you're called to celibacy, that's not a, that's not like a license to just sort of look out for number one. And play Xbox by yourself, and you know, in your basement. Uh, that 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 is a responsible a responsibility and a calling to radical service in Christ's endeavors um, in this world. And and so I think viewing it that way helps us to understand that ultimately we're not choosing lifestyles here. And I think we sometimes I think part of the disconnect for a lot of single people when we talk about marriage is we sometimes talk about marriage as this sort of 
self-fulfilling project. We go, man, once you get married, you'll have this person who loves you all the time and everything is going to be awesome, you know, what, what have you. Sort of turn it into this disney version of human relationship. And being able to be honest when we speak about it and say, this is about you giving of yourself, self-sacrifice, mm-hmm. uh, uh, submission to the Lord for the sake of your role in that relationship. And I think that might clear some of the air. It might feel less like one one side of this coin is getting like all these awesome things. And the other side's, you know, got to take one for the team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had yeah. a past, my pastor in college. Um, he said when you're married, he said, wives uh, or husbands, if you want to know that you're doing what God's called you to do, uh, 10 years later after you're, you've been married or, or got married, if your wife's more in love with Jesus now because of you than she was the day you got married, then you know that you're setting the right example. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's that's a good goal to aim for, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I'd, I'd like us to kind of wrap up the conversation at this point by just collecting some last words, some final thoughts from you guys on this topic. Um, you know, I think that parents might need to be the focal point of our uh, last words here, of our final thoughts. I think that parents are under a lot of stress. <laughs> we have a lot of hope invested in who our children will marry, um, whether they'll get married, who they're dating. And so w- what would be some final thoughts you'd like to share to any listening parent or s- someday parent um, on this whole question of their own child's dating and uh, within the world that we live in? How would you guys address that? I would say don't entrust this responsibility to somebody else, to an institution. I mean, the church can mm-hmm. can aid in the parent's responsibility, but that's on us. But what I was, uh, what I think is really important is just to give a heads up to parents that it's gonna, you're gonna have to be really intentional about this. You're gonna have to be willing to put in the time, the resistance that may be, uh, you may be met with by your own child in trying to cultivate. Uh, healthy practice when they begin uh, dating and preparation for marriage. Uh, dads, set an example for your daughters. Uh, be an example for your sons, and and speak truth uh, to them. Uh, and uh, trust the spirit in your children to cultivate that. Point your kids toward the right things, the things that matter in the people that they're looking or interested in. For relationship, so that you can avoid, uh, to the best of your ability, having to pick up broken pieces along the way. Because it's, um, I, I tell my children all the time, it, you're already a dead end if you've not checked the boxes of what needs to be present before you even start this this journey. And so, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't want to see my kids uh, suffer unnecessarily. And so, uh, be intentional uh, with mm-hmm. this. I would also say start early in setting the expectations uh, with your children about what dating should and could look like. Um, so there, there's a time to tell your child to wait. Listen, I, I've, I'm observing your life as a loving parent, and you're not at the stage of maturity I want to see to begin dating. Uh, for some people, that will be you know depressing, but for a lot of youth, that will be a a challenge. Oh, hey, maturity is what I need to do this. That's great. You know, that's a good expectation to set. But also said like communicating clearly, hey, when you start dating, 
here are the boundaries you should have for yourself. Here's what the Bible tells you, us about how we relate to one another in these relationships. Here's what I'm expecting out of you in terms of um, behavior, in terms of what should you be looking for. Have conversations about what are their what is their vision for a married relationship. And then working backwards from there of, okay, well, if that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for that God-honoring spouse and that family and then what are the things you should be seeing in the relationship to get there? Um, and being intentional about saying, okay, I see the maturity in you. Let's start talking about what is dating going to look like and starting that stuff early because I feel like a lot of parents don't want to touch it because they feel like if they touch that uh, area of their kid's life, then it's like, oh, well, I'm going to kick it off too early. You know, the pro- the uh, Song of Songs talks about this is don't awaken love before it's time. Um, but I think parents need to be discerning about saying, okay, I see that we're moving into that stage. Let's start talking and setting the groundwork now so that once we hit those relationships, we've got some good boundaries and good vision in place. Yeah, I, I would I would piggyback on what you just said, Kyle, um, and, and just highlight from another episode, we talked about stories mm-hmm. and how powerful stories are and how they shape our understanding of the world around us. And I think our culture loves to tell stories about romance. They're just rarely ever uh, godly stories about romance. And and yet those those are the kinds of stories that really do set our kids' expectations for what a dating relationship could look like. Like it doesn't have to just be porn that will corrupt mm-hmm. a child's expectations on what romance is about and how you find romance and what it means to find the one or what your purpose is and all those kinds of things. So I would... I would say, as impossible that, as this is, you know, maybe up the ante on what it looks like to be a gatekeeper of the kind of stories that are your children imbibe on the question of romance and relationships. Um, don't let the world cast a vision for what romance really is about and for for them. Um, but on the other hand, I would say, look for better stories to tell. Um, look for... Uh, look for an opportunity to cast a better vision like sleeping beauty. The old Disney sleeping beauty is a far better vision to cast than the bachelor. (laughs) Okay. So like think about the stories that your kids are imbibing and the promises that they're being, uh, that are being made to them about what they can hope, how they can hope to find happiness or fulfillment, uh, through romance. I I think that's right. I, I also, um, I think, you know, we talk a lot about first principles in the Garden of Eden and Genesis in here. Um, this is not a first principle, but it's a kind of a foundational reality about our existence, and that is that there's a liar in the world who is going to be whispering lies into our ears and trying to disorient us from the purposes to which for which God put us here. And I think this is an area that we're talking about today, which gets to the issue of story, Ben. Um, what are our children are being lied to pretty much around the clock (laughs) about their purpose for being in the world and it's not just their purpose as human beings but their purpose as a young man and their purpose as a young woman and the nature of where they were going to find their um the fulfillment of that purpose and in what form and so i think for young if for parents of young men helping them understand what manly responsibilities are which are not interchangeable 
with womanly responsibilities. But what manly responsibilities are and cultivating an aspiration, a point of view about themselves and the world they live in that makes the pursuit of manly responsibilities and aspiration for a young man, that's critical. And I think, because I think young men are being told there's nothing unique about them. They're just sort of interchangeable with women in, as an economic functionary. Uh, but that's, that's actually not the truth. Women are, are in the same way. They're being told the only fulfillment you're going to find is to pursue manly responsibilities. And that's also not the, not the truth. And, and I think they need to be encouraged to think differently and hear a different story and a different narrative about what they're capable of accomplishing and the transforming effect they can have within their family uh, by taking up womanly responsibilities within that family unit. And so I think parents are going to have to counter, counter the lies that their children are hearing in order to you know, provide the, the motivation, the vision, the kind of the, the aspiration to, to be what God wired them to be, which mm-hmm. is being, you know, subjugated to lies. Yeah, and one, one final word to those, I think, especially young adults for whom the question of marriage or dating or singleness is particularly heavy. Um, if you're single and desiring marriage and you're listening to this, or single and perplexed about what it is the Lord is gifting to you, <laughs> maybe worried that it's one or the other, I would just say um, devote yourself to prayer, trust the Lord and His timing on these things, and devote yourself to becoming the kind of person um, that the Lord wants you to be so that when your calling becomes evident, whether it's the person He's bringing in your life to marry or an opportunity to pursue Christ-likeness and celibacy, you are you are ready to take up that responsibility. Um, you know, invest yourself in what you can control and devote yourself to prayer. Uh, wait on the Lord. Today we talked about the impact our world has had on dating relationships compared to God's purpose and design we find in Scripture. It seems we are being more and more conformed to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So it's imperative that our marriages reflect God's design and purpose, and that we are raising our children to understand their responsibility and purpose in relationships in order to glorify the Lord. This has been a Faith and Culture Conversation, a ministry of Lake Ridge Bible Church. You can join the conversation by emailing us at faithandculture at lakeridge.org. Special thanks to Jeremy Wilkerson for producing.